Hello and uh, welcome to another episode of uh, the Ashes Lounge. Firstly, apologies for the sort of d- d- the gap in, in in recent recordings. Um, I've had this rather niggling cough that just simply won't go away. Um, however, it's I have decided in, in true bulldog spirit, um, or perhaps in my case, Chihuahua spirit. Um, just to work through it. Uh, so if I do cough, I do apologise. I'm going to try and not cough. Um, enough about me. <clears throat> I'm joined today by uh, OC Frenchnet. Gary, morning. Bonjour. Bonjour. Uh, and OC reenactments. Um, and you know what? Actually, you need to be. I think that you need to be changed. You need to have a new title. Um, OC reenactments of research. OC research. Okay, mate, that sounds... Uh, <laughs> I've been called many things in my life, and uh, those, these are amongst the better labels that you're throwing at me now. <laughs> I, I, I personally wish to be known as the Sports Prevention Officer. Can't see... Uh, but seeing as we're now picking up listeners from the, the, the armed forces, I've got to be really careful, because somebody may have claimed that one already. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so... Um, since since the last episode, a lot's been going on uh, for both of you. I know, so Gary, the Bacants has started up with a vengeance by the look of it. Oh, yes. <laughs> Are you now glad you live on a... meeting with any English people coming over, either, which is fantastic. <laughs> I'm unleashed. <laughs> Are you also glad you now live in a farm with numerous buildings for which to store your wares? <laughs> Dodgy subject. Madam is in the other room. Oh, okay, okay. So, <laughs> can we have a safe word? Uh, no, no word to say from Madam. <laughs> and Nick, you, you actually, uh, sort of, <clears throat> for, for my part, I've, I've been loitering around the the innards of Nottinghamshire, uh, which, is, as you both know, is not exactly the, the hot bed. Well, actually, it's not too bad around here. It's Civil War country, um, but. Um, not a huge amount going on at the moment, um, but Nick, you've been out on on, on journeying and, and and researching and doing stuff. Yeah, um, probably you know for those people who who follow me on Twitter would um, probably have uh, seen the song and dance and uh, around a, a a Normandy trip that has sort of been in the planning for the end of two years now, but obviously. Due to COVID, had, had delayed it for, for you know for understandable reasons, and um, but finally um, myself and uh, Paul Durham, um, so on Twitter, I went out to see um, Sean Claxton, who is a British um, guide um, in in Normandy, and um, and Sean showed Paul and myself uh, quite an in-depth look at a. Uh, of a Normandy tour that sort of focused largely on the Canadian efforts through from Juneau um, through to um, Falaise and uh, um, including uh, elements of, of, of uh, wider British uh, involvement and, uh, and the Poles too. And that was absolutely, it was generally a very relaxing time, although it was quite a busy time, quite intense. You know, um, probably eight hour, eight nine hour days in terms of um, in terms of going out and um, and and researching and and treading the ground and and listening to Sean educate both Paul and myself and uh, yeah so uh, yeah that that was that was excellent. So just just for the, just the sake of this, was there any uh, particular division or corps that you were following at the time? Uh, had you gone over this well, you know, I'm going to follow the route of the regiment X, Y, and Z, and then speak to that. Sorry, Ben, I couldn't pick you up then. I don't know if it's technology at my end. Actually, it helps if I do that with my headpiece. I am so sorry. <laughs> I'd moved it so when I coughed, nobody could hear me. And it just shows you how effective that is. No, sorry, chap. Um, <laughs> it was, yeah, there you go. If you just joined us on the Adjutant's Lounge, professionalism is the watchword. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're never going to get funding for this ever. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, one of us, when you went over, had, had, in your mind, had you sort of decided that you were going to follow the, the movements sort of from the beachhead, as it were? Uh, inland of, of a certain corps, brigade, regiment, 
you know, or even squadron. If um, you want to get, the... yeah, um, essentially, um, again, that so to reiterate, that was the, you know, as people would probably um, can say, follow me on Twitter, understand that I'm particularly interested in the. World War II German Army, and um, and in particular on this occasion, I was looking at wanting to look at the the really um, early actions of I think it was the Canadian Third Division um, following their landing from Chuno, and in particular the the, the rather brutal um, uh, actions that took place largely um, against the 12th SS Hitler Jugend uh, Division, and in doing that, um, clearly you can't look at you can't look at that else without separating the actions which are interesting and and clearly brutal in in their own. Well, when I say clearly brutal, for people who don't understand, there were some brutal actions um, there. You can't disassociate that with obviously the 12th SS um, reputation and and indeed evidence based. Um, atrocities that were committed not just against um, some of the Canadian um, opposition, but also um, some unfortunate Brits that sort of got tied, you know, seemed to get tied up with that. Um, so I was always interested in, in, in that element, in looking at it in greater detail. Um, and so beyond that, it made, I, I, I sort of passed over the itinerary to Sean and and outside of saying that is what I would broadly like to start with, um, please fill in bits and pieces that you think are are relevant. And um, so um, Sean did that. And when Paul Durham joined us, um, he is Durham in name and Durham in geographical birth. Um, he's from the northeast and. Um, so it was uh, an opportune time to include the Durham Light Infantry. Um, uh, and so we covered those as, as, as well um, at Longueira from recollection. And then moving through Hill 112, um, lesser known, uh, a lesser known action, I think, to, to the, uh, looking at it um, on a map, um, north facing up, we were looking at, uh, toward more, uh, more towards the, the west of Hill 112, which was uh, the Grimbo um, uh, bridgehead across the Orm, um, which is more of a little known action that, that involved um, uh, the Norfolks and the Staffordshires, and that was a that was that was an interesting action in its own right. Um, again, there was a tie in there with the 12th SS because they had a battle group there that, that contested that ground amongst other German units, and then. Following there, um, and 112, we looked at um, driving through really down to, to Falaise. And, you know, the, for me, again, you know, quite an, in, you know, an interesting yet brutal element of the final, final uh, ending of perhaps Norm, the Normandy. In terms of the pocket, I understand that there were clearly, there's more fighting through to Le Havre um, uh, into September. But in terms of the pocket, we ended up there, which was a, a logical conclusion. But, it, but so broadly, it was Canadian um, Poles, Poles and Brits against various German units. And um, oh, including the, the infamous, certainly on Twitter, um, action against um, Michael Bittman um, and, uh, and, and the discussion around who brought his demise about. Um, and again, you know, everyone talks about it, walking the ground um, and getting, yeah, enables you a far greater appreciation of these actions. Um, yeah, that's that's why my, my biggest takeaway, it was it was my most in-depth tour that I've ever undertaken with, um, with a superlative guide, in my opinion, and, uh, and good company in terms of Paul Durham. And, um, yeah, I've come away now in a position where I can now re revisit some books and really appreciate what they're trying to tell me in these books as a result of walking the ground. Well, that's brilliant. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, it, it's interesting sort of um, hearing about these things. You know, Normandy tour is something I've, I've never done. Um, 
I remember looking at various areas with my father when I was young when we used to go over, but not a proper sort of tour as such. Um, in, in terms of, sort of on on the ground and your and your your views on that, um, and I'm only I'm, I'm going to use Villers Bocage as. Um, I mean, did you go to Villers Bocage? I'm, presu- I'm assu- presuming you did. Um, interestingly, no. We no. Okay. We we, we did we. We drove. We drove literally through uh, Villas Bocage um, on, on, the, on the way back. It just wasn't on, on the on the itinerary at that stage, and I I seen Villas Bocage in a in a, in a previous in a previous uh, jaunt over there. But where we where we did touch on the Michael Whitman, you know, um, story was his demise um, uh, during. Um, oh my. Uh, what would have been what would have been the operation, Gary? It escapes me. Do you recall the operation that he brought? The one on the eighth of August. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. And the so, um, yeah, it's it's the, to do with like trying to get out there, isn't it? The bombings coming over some aircraft, they go forward, and it all leads into that. Um, yes. But yeah, eighth of August operations. Yes. So um, so yeah, that 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 was our tie up with with regards to. Um, uh, Vitman and in particular there because there was still this sort of semi theme of the 12th SS being looked at and indeed around that time he was <coughs> he was with um, elements of the 12th SS as they were trying to contest the, the British um, and Canadian um, push on, onto Falaise. That was Octoclise, wasn't it? Correct, correct. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, yes. You should have been on the trip. You, you were <laughs> I, I, the, the, it took me a minute. It, it really did save me a minute, and it was sort of. I should. Have, I, I think sometimes when when you're looking at these things, as state, you, you are not bamboozled. And I, and I think you, you you may both agree with me. There there is so much information to take in, and so much going on. That the simplest things can overlook us. And I was I was racking my brain thinking, which operation was Whitman killed in? Um, I was thinking myself and thinking, my God, but you are you are right in the sense of uh, having you know a, a reasonable appreciation of the Normandy campaign, um, and and reasonable is is I'm being kind. Um, the information over it it's surprisingly tiring, and I think you know I didn't realise that from Sean's perspective exactly how tiring it is for the likes of people such as Gary and other battlefield tour guides when it. You know, for me, the presumption is, oh, that's quite an easy, easy sort of, you know, or nice job to have. And I'm sure it is a nice job to have. But I certainly appreciate now coming away from it and just seeing exactly how tiring it is for professional guides. And um, because, you know, um, Paul and myself, as as being the punters, we found it tiring, um, very much enjoyable, but it's still tiring. And um, and the information potentially, uh, you know, that, that you are absorbing is... Um, I would say for, for perhaps for, for lesser military geeks, perhaps they only absorb perhaps somewhere between 20 and 30% of what they're being told, perhaps, because there potentially is so much. Um, but yeah, it was totalised and I, and I screwed that up. No, 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 it's all right. <laughs> like you say, it's, it's, there's just so much going on, isn't there? Uh, and you're not sure whether it's, it's this, that or the other. Um, I think it's often, you know, not help because because at that point of the war, the, the movement was so fluid and so rapid. Um, so I, I, th- I think anyone could be forgiven for just just forgetting things like that. But but the key actions, I think Gary, I'm, I'm going to swing this one to you a little bit. Might, you, so you, you, at this point, you can say you know get out of it. Um, re- regarding so the, the organisation of tours, and this is quite nice because this. This this sort of podcast is building around battlefield tours now, um, uh, and taking on board what Nick, Nick said about the fatigue of, of leading a tour. Is this something that you've experienced um, during during your war, uh, your work? Apologies, um, as a tour guide. Yes, without a doubt, um, <clears throat> and it, it can be just as tiring if you've got like uh, Nick was saying, a car full of people or a, a small van, uh, as if you've got forty people on a bus. Um, and it, it, it's tiring. You, you've got to know your work. You've got to uh, be Mr. Hello, welcome. How are you today? You're 
in many ways uh, nursemaiding people, certainly on the larger tours. So you're not just that aspect of the historical side, but you've also got to look at people. Yeah, yes, there's a bank machine over there. Yes, you can get food here. Uh, try these restaurants here. Uh, make sure you're in bed early, folks, because we've got an early day. You know, realize these are themed holidays that people have paid for. So that's their in difference for the army staff rides and stuff. Now, the people you're dealing with, uh, they're in for this. They're grab. Is they've paid a lot of money to go on these tours. Um, so they have to make it enjoyable and not as much hard work and realize that as well. Um, that can be quite a draw. Then you've got to realize as well, um, for what we're doing when you tend to get the larger coaches, you've got a huge mix of people from 30, 40, up to 50 people, say. And when you're doing something, and I'll use Normandy, you've got people that are there to, say, follow the actions of their fathers. You may have the odd guy, very rare now, who's back to follow where he and his mates were. You've got people who then have got a good interest in it, like Nick. Um, and I'm not going to use Nick as in case, but people that might be there to trip you up, yeah, as well. Um, you've got that. And then you've got people that have managed to bring the wife along under duress, yeah. <laughs> So you've got to realise that you've got that element to add to uh, as well. Uh, and what people tend to find, as Nick quite rightly said, you can hand out all these names, you know, Operation Corporate. The, uh, the beach is not so bad because everyone tends to remember the beaches. But the other operations, when we go up and do the likes of Total Rise and we're up on Hill 112, that almost goes straight over people's heads. What they're going to start to really grab at and what you uh, – and it's different to when you're doing if you're on army staff rides or stuff like this. Uh, they want to hear the stories. I was out with someone on the song uh, last week, uh, and he was talking about when he'd seen stuff on TV. He's a friend of mine, and he, I said, "Look, let's go down because they're pulling trees out of Trones Wood, so let's go and have a look around Trones." And he said, "It's the stories I want, and with many people, they want." Today, it's the personal aspect, which what many will want. So when they go to 112, they want to know about it, you know, being equated almost with the Verdun of the Western Front. Um, they want to know that when you're driving through Khan, I'll always throw in, you know, whenever we took me back, me dad, through Khan, or whenever you mentioned the word Khan, you'd like pause and listen to him say, field of bricks. When we went through there, it was a field of bricks. Uh, and that, a, that helps to paint the picture, but that's what people tend to want to hear. Um, I remember doing a Waterloo um, for the, coming up for the, the bicentenary, uh, and my boss was there, and he was talking to a couple of people, uh, and he, he was saying, look, the mo most that people have come away with, the guests, will be if you tell them the story about Waterloo teeth, about either teeth being taken out of the cadavers to, to put into uh, um, yeah, to put into false teeth sort of thing. And that's what people will come away with as well they might then go back and go home and as nick said revisit a book now and get a completely different idea from that book and evolve up to that next stage of battlefield touring so yes it is tiring it is a fantastic job and of all the jobs i've had probably apart from being a saturday boy in a model shop back in 1972 um it's the best job i've ever had without a doubt is it emotional yes does it get to you yes do you, and is it a performance in many ways? Yes. And and you meet some amazing people. You do. I'd say 99.9% .9 of the people that come on battlefield tours are absolutely fantastic. Uh, it really is. Do you give a performance? The best guides do. It's a performance. You can sit at the front of that coach. You can do the banter with everybody. Yeah. And it's a performance that you do. You educate people. You'll take people on a journey. Uh, one, we, we had uh, Royal Fusiliers, veterans uh, of, of like the 60s and the 70s out, uh, folks from Birmingham. And we did the five-day tour uh, going from, um, it was a, a private tour for leisure. Uh, and we went from the beaches right the way through to fillets, to the packet, uh, to the pocket, to Chambois, up to where the poles. And one of the ladies said, I felt like I was going on a journey. And when I got to that final bit, we used to end up at the Tiger, uh, 
when you could actually climb all over it, that sort of thing as well uh, at the time. Uh, yes, I did do it. And she said, I felt like I was on a journey. And I think that's what you need to do to people. But it is emotional. I mean, Nettie used to pick me up from uh, from Calais. And I just say, you know, I need to unload. I think we let's go out and have a big slap up meal. And I'll come home, sit down and go, wallop. All right. It's not Mick Jagger in front of 60,000 people going, that's it. I need to go and have a break in a Spanish castle. But you do come home and feel drained emotionally and physically. It's interesting you should say that. And there are a couple of things that I've picked up from as both of you are talking. Was like, I can imagine, I think the emotional content would come from a sort of the, the, the cultural knowledge uh, and appreciation of what happened there militarily for the Allies. Um, you know, if, if you read, especially sort of, you know, the, the Falaise Pocket, um, I've been reading recently. I mean, it, it was it was an absolute carnal. It was, it, was, it was a carnal house, wasn't it, really, the whole area. I mean, is it true that people, they couldn't drink the water from the area until 1947, 48, because of the amount of... Um, I mean, it's yeah. about three... I remember, I mean, the first time I went to the, the Falaise Pocket, and we did a tour, because we, we, if you remember, originally the tour was going to be about how was reenactors we got into battlefield touring. Um, and, and I can go back to 79 with that. But the first time we went to Normandy uh, was early 80s. And then we used to regularly go on holiday. And there's a friend of mine, Nick might have heard of him, the infamous Neil Kenny, who was the um, BRA German unit commander when it was Storm Group Adler. It was him and his brothers. Uh, and we went away with him. And, and what we did was, and it would have been about 84, I think. Uh, and it was one day the girls would go and do their bit, bit shopping on the beach, that sort of thing. And then the lads would have a day on a battlefield. And me and Neil drove down to the Falaise Cockpit. Uh, we were staying in Coutons, which was the American sector, which got flattened uh, during the campaign. And we drove down to the Falaise. Uh, and you went through it a bit. We did the Whitman thing. Oh, great story about that bit. Um, and we drove down. You went to the castle. You followed the signs. There were these like wooden signs then that said Corridor of Death. And we had, we were armed with our copy of After the Battle magazine. Yeah. And he drove out of Falaise. The first thing they wanted to stop at was the Trun, oh my God, tank scrapyard. Yeah. Mick started smiling when I mentioned the word Trun. Yeah. And I think about 40% of it was still there then. And the easiest way to describe it, imagine a load of Tamiya tank kits that have not been made. And someone's got a load of them off the sprayer, all the bits, and just emptied them into two big fields. That was it. Upturned panther chassis. Loads and loads of odd bits of metal everywhere that we were going around identifying. That was when I learned how heavy armour plate is. Because you get a thing that's about the size of a house brick and it takes two people to lift it up sort of thing, you know. And there was stuff scattered all over. Uh, and the big thing I can remember, I found a still 88 millimeter uh, spent shell case from a tank. So I, I, I felt quite happy. And in the distance, I could hear a groan, a thump, a groan, a thump, and a groan, and a thump, getting louder. And coming towards me was Neil, who was quite fit, really. Did a lot of, you know, circuit training. And he'd found the front plate that guard that you see on the top of a stook, what the commander looked through. Oh, yes. It's yeah, yeah. Him, one of them. And he's <laughs> going, I don't care what happens, I'm going to get this back. And I tried to help him lift it, and it was it was a nightmare. And he had this Ford Company car, a Sierra, and he literally put it in the boot, and it went down onto its axle. And he eventually he got it home, had it in his garden. And I was totally envious of this, to be perfectly honest. And um, he got divorced about seven years later. And his missus, he left home, missus kicked him out and said, that's it, so I'm throwing all this stuff away. And um, I thought, here we go, I'm in here. And I <laughs> said, so, um, do you mind if, and she said the last words he said when he walked out the door after his marriage breakup was, don't let Gary have the plate from the tank. <laughs> 
So that was me gone. Um, <laughs> but from there, we then drove down past Trun, followed the route down, through the curry thing, up to where you got all the photographs of the tanks dump murder at the church with the tanks on the road by the side of the church. You followed the uh, the little track down to the right as you're heading in uh, towards Chambois. And at that point, you literally could walk along that river. And all right, I'm talking, what, 35 years ago now, and just stick your hand in, grab, and then pull out clumps of earth, and there would be all sorts of material. Burnt, smashed, you name it, anything. You know, a retreating army, from bits of radios uh, to personal effects, all just smashed and burned. And that was just lining lining on those streams. And, of course, there was a guy there who was a farmer who'd had a contract, I think, to clear the area, or one of those who had a contract to clear the area. And he'd thrown everything in a whole series of barns. Um, And then he got into collecting the stuff big time. And it was one thing to get in there. And we never got in there. But it's in the After the Battle book on the Fillets Gap or the, the, uh, the magazine they did at that time. And I think his collection now forms part of the, um, the the collection that you see just before you go into the cemetery at Omaha Beach, the uh, um, uh, the D-Day Museum that they've got there. And it, it was just stuff all over the place. You know, there was still farmers, well, there still is now, but it was everywhere. And you really did get an impression. And you'd read the books, the early accounts, then, you know, so much more stuff available now. You know, Eisenhower saying he was convinced he could walk along um, you know, one of the avenues of death or whatever that you see the photographs, and he could just done it just stepping on flesh without touching the ground. Um, but the big thing, of course, we always used to push then as you know, the death of the German army at, um, uh, at the Falaise Gap, and then of course, you realize how many actually got out, and it was <laughs> a, a partial success more than anything because what they're doing is they want to get out so they could get to uh, Rouen. And Ruan takes them onto the Seine, which then takes them, you know, they're, they're out. Um, and before I let Nick come back in, do apologise. Um, when you look at the timetable for Paris to fall, which, of course, it falls today, I think, um, back in 1944, they're only a couple of days late. Everyone goes about and being held up at, um, uh, you know, held up in Normandy and it's this, that and everything else. But when you look at their timetable for getting into Paris, they're only a couple of days out. And as Nick says, when you stand up on the ground at 112, it mm. all tends to make sense. You know, hold them with the left, move around with the Yanks coming out on the right and bursting out. It makes so much sense. Look at how many divisions the British were holding, or the, the, the Allies, i.e. the Canadians, uh, the French and the, um, uh, and the English were holding compared to what the Americans were smashing through. And you go to 112, and a great thing to do, as Nick knows, you go to Hill 112. When I first went there, there was only a French guy up there with a metal detector. There was nothing else at all. The, the old road was there with a cavalry, and that's all there was. I think it was a little memorial. Nothing else. And we got out onto the uh, the fields and, uh, and everything else. Um, and, of course, what you do is you walk folks to it. You've given them the talk. It's the last day, more or less, of the tour because you're doing the inland battles. And then everyone goes, or you've told them, why is the Hill 112? so important and you walk a hundred yards to your left and you look down and you look right down into the throat of Khan. you can only get that impression by standing on that spot you don't get that from a book it's there are a couple of sort of things uh, as we're talking the experience of mine there's there's one i'll ask you both later um in terms of your activities, and, and you, as you rightly said, looking at this through the eyes of, uh, of reenactors, uh, and I'll, I'll swing back to you, Nick. Hope you don't mind. You know, bearing in mind your your sort of recent return, if you were still within the the, the reenacting circles, would that have been would the ride that you've just experienced would that have been exceptionally useful for you in terms of how you would have portrayed? a German unit or a group of German soldiers at that time in that area. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it, it, it absolutely ma- ma- makes sense. Um, but I 
think my answer would have been no. I think it's. Uh, I think. I think actually. Yeah, but I'd flip it on its head and say that based upon my understanding of the German army and a in inverted commas ordinary German infantryman. Um, I think I would get to the, I think I would be more uh, inclined to say that I'd be looking around the the areas in which I'd be touring and indeed touring just recently and have a great and actually have a reasonable appreciation, I think, of how the German army would have put in an attack on a place or defended a place by, rather than, rather than, um, the, 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 the question that you, you suggested um, and I, th I suppose that comes from my and again my, my understanding and whether I'm right or wrong of my appreciation of how and enjoyment and interest in, in German tactics of how that they would have tried to use the grounds um, deployed um, and indeed then or when they're attacking an objective or indeed defending the objective and how they would have how they would have set out their their platoon structure etc with uh, and with supporting weapons that's that's actually what I I took took from it because I remember um, Sean showing us one of the first actions of the 12th SS, I think, versus the Winnipeg Rifles from recollection, in, uh, if I'm right, in Puton Bassan, um, a few, uh, a few uh, on around the 8th or 9th, would that no, being the 7th of 7th of June from recollection, and I think Sean took us into a field where I think it was B Company, if I am right, it was the Winnipeg Rifles from recollection. How B Company uh, disposed of its um, disposed its its uh, men in in defensive positions, and you see the tree line look, looking looking towards the German attack line of attack um, from the 12th SS. Um, apparently, there you know you see a tree line, and you understand that in this tree line sat supporting because machine guns, which was the extreme right flank of the uh, 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 of the Canadian position, and that's what I I really enjoy from these trips. Actually, is going back to what um, Gary said with regards to probably a lot of punters wanting the personalised aspect. I'm more nerdy in the sense that my key key takeaway and 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 look look for is. Is trying to apply tactics, uh, you know, at platoon and company level, to, of either side to the locations, and I dare say that I'm probably very much in the minority in that regard. But that's what really floats my boat, and um, yeah, that's why that's what I take from it. Probably a bit rambly that, but that's no, no, no. I came from, I came from the other side. I come from the <clears> other <throat> side. <laughs> no, no, that, not not at all. And that is quite interesting because I think. And I'll, I'll ask you the same question in a moment, Gary. I think that when we do these things, we we do them. We look at them. We do tend to look at them in, in the role of the victor. Um, I, I mean, you know, in, in terms of battlefield tours, I mean, the one that I would love to do, uh, and I know you could do it up until quite recently, um, was Kursk, um, due to the deteriorating sort of political. Um, environment over there that's not no longer possible and there were there were several things you could do with with the authorities you could go over you could do the archaeology thing which combined it to and so that, that interests me internally um so i i think looking beyond looking at a battlefield from the opposite side or looking at it from uh, the perspective of a complete outsider it's always intrigued me so no no i i think that's a very very you know yeah, you've raised some really good points there. I think Gary, you know, in terms of your reenactment um, past and the battlefield tours, how how do you feel that they helped you in in given authentic? Um, um, what well, one thing is being a reenactor, and and it comes in. We all know there's a dark side about reenacting, and a lot there's been a lot of Mickey taking about reenactors, and we all get older. We know that. I mean, I first started. 
World War II reenacting. I was already a serious reenactor at that point. Um, in 1978, and it was the Germans, 352, that it wasn't then, it was, I think it was Storm Group Adler at that point. Um, the guy in charge said, we need to do a, a, a little away weekend. And it was uh, October 1979. And a guy called Dave Humphreys, people may know him from the uh, um, Mike Ross, Quartermasters at the Angel. Uh, they did a thing for TV and then they got into films. They organised it and they said, look, what we do is we'll go away on the uh, Friday night and we'll come back on Sunday afternoon and we're going to do the Atlantic Wall. So it was interesting as a German reenactor at that time to, it was still quite exciting, you know, meeting up at um, King's Cross Station in uh, in London and getting the, the van from Dartford Motors uh, and 12 lads drove over, I think we went over on the other craft, um, to Calais, down to Wissant, where we stayed at the uh, the Hotel Normandy, which had been used by Goering and the Luftwaffe or for, for Eagle Day and for lunches and dinners, and it was an R&R place for the Luftwaffe. Uh, Dave Davis was the guy that owns Battery Toe. He'd been there in the Second World War as a kid. His dad was Welsh, who stayed over with the Imperial War Grades uh, post-World War One. so he had his stories. We were looking at the German positions. There was a couple of French lads who come up to meet us who had their little metal detector and went off finding loads of ammunition. So that particular tour was just a little, almost like a recce of a tour to go over. Uh, and, and we missed loads. When you consider what you can do in that area now, it was quite immature. And it was just doing a fair few of the bunkers, uh, the railway gun positions, Dave's Museum. They just grabbed that cruiser tank off the beach that had been uncovered in after the battle. And that was it. And the next one we did, which was a year or so later, Passmore said, we need to do something a bit more organised. Uh, and they said, look, what we're doing, and this was weird. There's a, a, a movie that was made by Century Films, which was Mike Ross and co, Eddie Kenton and co. Uh, they did the Molash thing, It's Only a Game. And their next film was about the recce boys at Arnhem. And we've been involved heavily in a lot of the filming. It's available on DVD, folks, and there's me in it quite a lot, looking quite quite good, I've always felt, actually. Um, and they said, what we're doing is we're going over in 1980 for a week to get on the ground for Arnhem Week. Now, the huge difference there, of course, was we were German reenactors. There was a couple of lads who were, were actually airborne reenactors. But of the 15 guys on the tour, 90% of them were World War II. Now we were 352916 uh, Regiment. And we were going over to a, a British-American British battlefield. We were doing a tour. And, of course, the huge big difference was in 1980, uh, we went to the big party they held uh, and everything else, and we went to the memorial that they did at the cemetery. Was Arnhem then, for that week, was covered in veterans. If you fell over, you landed on a veteran. And they were all younger than I am now, the majority of them. So we'd go off to these areas. And first off, we were following the recce lads uh, who, were, who were there. All the lads were there that, that, that uh, you know, were telling us ourselves. So you'd meet them up. And now you've got the veteran right standing by the slit trench that he was wounded in or standing by the crossroads where his jeep got shot up and he saw his, uh, his mate at the back of his head blown off. And there you are as a German reenactor listening to this. And I can remember Mr. Passmore taking me to one side and said, we've spent a whole day following the recce lads. And all they seem to do, and I hate to say this, is run around Arnhem getting ambushed by the Germans. Because <laughs> uh, it was ambush point one, ambush point two, ambush point three. Uh, and we eventually went to the bakery where they finally held up with, with, with the sergeant. Um, and everything else, and then the whole thing we did. And that was very much in depth, but not really for our unit, which I'll come on to later, because, you know, the officer candidate regiment were there, the, you know, the various SS units were there as well. Um, so it was interesting from the Arnhem point of view and the veterans, because they were everywhere. And they were all in their late 50s, early 60s. And I remember going into a pub one night, and they, they dragged us in there, these veterans. And I was only in my early 20s. And 
one of my mates said to the barman, when do you close? And of course they're Dutch, so they all speak English mainly better than me. And he pointed over and he said, when the last one of them hits the floor. And that was what it was like. Um, so that was fantastic. And that was a huge big difference to when you're going now. The first one we did to follow 352, and I know Nick's done it, is we followed the Arden route. Mm. And we did a lot to do with the Arden stuff where they were. So now as a reenactor, you reenacted for a few years as a, a World War II German, really setting ourselves at like 1944, 45. To go then to the places where those lads fought quite heavily involved, D. Kirk and what have you, the museum wasn't there at the time. That was quite different. What did I bring away from it? Well, at the time going there, I more or less realised what it was to wear the kit. Yeah. And literally the boots as well. Um, so you get a different perspective of that. And there's all sorts of little things that you'll get from wearing the kit. I'm not talking about firing the weapons because it's completely different and you're not being fired at by live ammunition and you might not die at any second. But just generally wearing the kit properly, not doing an Al Murray thing where he looks like a sack of potatoes tied up with a bit of string around his waist, but wearing it properly with old Fred Walker saying, no, the German soldier only ever had his hands in his pockets when he was putting something in or taking something out. Yeah, that's what you came away with. So that, that was very good. The big difference that what Nick said, of course, so when he did recently in, in uh, Normandy, was much of the information we had back in the 80s was not generally available. It wasn't a flick of a switch on a computer, um, which is so much different. But, of course, the big bonus was veterans everywhere. Mm. And, and I'll tell you one thing else. Before I, I let Nick come back in, do apologise. No, no. When, I, when we do tours... And we're doing the inland battles or we're doing the, the, the advance up to calm. You'll go to places that are now industrial estates. That 20 years ago, you were in the middle of a cornfield. And of course, a lot of people said, you know, it was a really dry summer uh, they had then. And it was almost like some said, it's almost like we're back in the Western desert. And of course, now you're doing that same little talk that I might have done or visiting with Nettie and the girls or boys back in 84, 85 and 86, and where you were standing in the middle of a field, you're now standing in the car park of an industrial estate. That's one thing as well. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> I mean, just, just to, it, it, this has come up a couple of times. Um, and, and and I and and again this 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 subject is quite intriguing because it is now leading me to sort of thinking, which is always very dangerous, as you both know. Um, and and this conversation, I think we need to sort of almost again part to it. Um, but the, but the subject of the staff ride, you know, this has long been a stable of, uh, especially of the um, of the staff colleges. Um, you know, since the end of the Second World War, and, and I, I must the First World War. They were going yes. to do Lucato. That's right, they were. So thank you, no, thank you for pointing that out. Because we did, we, yeah, I said again. I, I, I don't know whether it, it, it's a, it's a disease of, of of any military history, regardless of level. I think we contemporise, don't we? So I've just fallen into that contemporisation track. But in in terms of the the Second World War based stuff rides, um, certain certain actions aside, such as Pegasus Bridge. Do you believe in, in terms of contemporary military operations, there is still a need for these to occur beyond the act of, of remembrance? Or do you do you both feel that perhaps there, there is still some lessons to be learned by commanders on the ground? Um, yeah, and at this point, I'm, I'm sort of focusing the, the, the question more on, yeah, more on teeth arms. <laughs> oh, that's an evil question, isn't it, isn't it really? <laughs> I mean, um, I look at it, when you look at the data, and we'll, we'll say, we'll, we'll, as you can see this developing. When you look, I look at the Second World War stuff when they were coming out, and the likes of Von Luck was coming out, and Mansoifel. Now, the British Army fell in love with them. Their enemy at that time was always going to be Soviet Russia. It was only 20 years or so after the end of the Second World War. So, much of the actions, first off, let's make the Germans a lot better than they are, and like, let's listen to the stories from Von Luck and well, von Luck more than anyone, I suppose, in Normandy, uh, and, and all the rest of it. You know, good everything the Germans did was good. 
everything the British done was incompetent, that sort of thing. I mm. tended to say about pushing that. I would say that and die on that hill. Um, and the actions then were probably quite relevant, really. Now you're talking 60, 70 years on. And when you look at a lot of the actions the way it performed in many ways, certainly tactically on the ground, you know, you'll say to someone, there they are, stuck here for five days because they can't see over the hill. Or someone will put up a, a, a drone or switch on a satellite. Yeah. They'll always say, you've got to remember, amateurs talk about tactics, professionals talk about logistics. So from that aspect, if you look at the Normandy campaign, the logistical aspects, yeah, even going back to the first day of the Somme, yeah, and the 100 days, I think the logistical aspect still bears fruit today. That doesn't change. It really, really doesn't. Um, now what I, t I tend to see on this, this stuff that I've been involved with when taking out uh, current serving soldiers on a very good one, it was youngsters coming into the army and being shown the traditions of what they were following in and some of the command decisions given at the time, how they would react today. And I'm thinking at... Um, uh, when the lads take the, uh, the, the gun positions uh, on Normandy, you know, the, uh, uh, where they all get lost and there's only 100 of them take up and, and come in and take the German gun positions because they might be shelling onto the beaches. There's a lot around that that they'll look at, but then they'll skirt over the reality behind it. Yeah, that the guns were in action later on in the day. Uh, the guy probably didn't give the order to shoot French civilians. Uh, and the rudder thing as well. People will look at the rudder thing. They'll go on to that to do with the actual thought process of a soldier. But their main thing I think to benefit, they probably get out of it, the youngsters, is the tradition thing, yeah? And I remember that they were doing one thing where they were, we were on the beach, and of course you've got the corporals and the NCOs and all that sort of thing that are in charge of these lot. Uh, and they want them to do a run up the beach as though they're hitting the Normandy coastline. So they've got all these kids in a rubber boat that they've towed up literally on the beach and they'll get out as though they're in it's Omaha. And I, what do you reckon, Gary? And I said, well, with all due respect for most of the troops that were here on this particular beach, they were literally walked off an LCT at this time, assembled on the beach. We've not really a lot of idea what was happening. And, you know, you read so many accounts and the blokes going, well, where's the battle then? Look at the photographs. Yeah, they literally, unless you're in that first lot with a company in tanks and an artillery bombardment in front of you, might have air cover. What you're doing is not real. Is not real. And that's yeah. No, that, so, that's not, yeah. Yeah, sorry, chap. No, that's a really that's a very important point to make, isn't it? Because you're when when you're reenacting in certain elements, like say, I, I suppose running up. You know, we've all run in sand. And, it, and it's not particularly pleasant. And there is, there's a lot to take in, you know, to factor in that. But ultimately, you don't have metal being hurled at you and you're not facing some very experienced and often inexperienced men um, def defending uh, the, the points you're trying to assail. Um, but Nick, what, what are your, your thoughts on this, chap? Um, to, to, be, uh, to, be, to be frank, I don't think that I can really add much to to the whole staff ride concept and in terms of learning today. Um, and, I, and I say that because I have never experienced a staff ride. Um, and so really, I, I don't think I'm, I, I'm qualified to say there. I, I suppose the only added value that I can possibly add is what Gary was alluding to earlier. And that was with regards to reenactment. And I and and I, I really do actually enjoy that that analogy of tactics such as spoken by amateurs and, and professionals talk about logistics because I am genuinely yeah. a fully paid up member of of the amateur brigade. And I in terms of <laughs> tactics, uh, that's just one thing that that has always sort of floated my boat. And and just going going back to what Gary was referring to was when um, reenacting within the same unit that Gary did, which was nine one six Grenadier Regiment, 
um, but this was in uh, in uh, Ardennes for the 60th anniversary. We were invited by the Luxembourg government to go over as a as a platoon, as a zug. So yeah, around 30 odd blokes, 30 plus blokes, and and I know other units have done this. Monty's men for Brit uh, the the ad hoc British reenactment group that that does a lot of. Uh, has done some very good um, sort of uh, retracing footsteps, but that's what we did. And and as Gary said, we retraced on that occasion on the 60th anniversary, the trip from uh, the Hosdorf Ridge, which was um, one of the um, key um, uh, objectives of of the 352nd Bulls Grenadier Division, um, and one particular platoon of 916 Grenadier Bulls Grenadier Regiment that, that moved from there. Um, and followed the the footsteps of, of of that company, of which that platoon belonged to, through places such as Longsdorf and uh, and down via um, into Dekirch, which was a, a longer term um, objective. And where I'm going through with that is, yeah, it's wearing the kit. It's it's starting off. Well, we were dropped off. Um, say um, around four o'clock the previous three o'clock the previous afternoon wind chill we stayed there overnight in what was the American foxholes and positions because we weren't allowed in German uniform on German soil so we had to be on Luxembourg soil so I, I didn't have to reenact crossing the Arrow River which was probably about two meters high at the time um, uh, in well in 1944 um, <clears throat> And um, but on that ridge, we uh, we woke. We, we we didn't get any sleep. I didn't didn't get any sleep. I think the Luxembourg Army liaison guy said it was around minus fifteen that night, which is nothing horrendous as stuff. But when you're just a civvy, a pretty unfit, perhaps civvy in full kit with all. The inner ammunition that you know, blank ammunition that they would have they would have been carrying, the additional kit. Um, I remember sort of um, as we were sort of getting together around 4:35 a.m. in the morning after a dedication ceremony um, <clears throat> to the Americans and the and, and the Germans on the plateau. I can remember we started off our march and I was um, you know, retracing the steps and I can recall being physically unwell by that stage in the sense that I'd not eaten for a little while. Um, I was frozen to the core, hobnails conduct cold very well. Um, and it was an interesting experience just from literally probably getting 1%, if, if it probably wasn't even in 1% of the experience of, of someone, of a German soldier at that time. Uh, but it was enough to make me understand the, the, the physical exertions that perhaps they would have to go through on either side just to march 10 odd miles and, and going arse over tip with hobnails on, on icy ground you know, which could e easily just result in, you're talking of, you know, bangs, bruises and potentially broken limbs, just doing that even before you'd, you'd found combat. And as Gary said, you're not being shot at, you're going to go back eventually to a hot shower. But I think that that's where certain people have critiques of reenactors for legitimate reasons but they don't perhaps take into account that some reenactors and living historians take it to that level and just try and push it as far as we can um, without the death, maiming and, and, and destruction. And that is actually enlightening. And it tells, tells me how to wear the kit. It tells me how effective the kit is, how poor the kit is. And that's not one thing that you will find in history books written by historians because I think as Gary again alluded to, they've not done that. And I think that's, that's for me and my understanding of history, that just adds a little bit to my 360 degree appreciation of, of what perhaps reenactment can bring to, to walking the ground. Um, 
again, I don't know. I, I'm sorry, I can't really adequately add to the staff ride element, but certainly from the reenacting element, that was a very, very interesting experience, and also taught me that how morale can potentially break down within a bunch of civilians playing as soldiers rather than perhaps soldiers themselves. So, uh, yeah, that was an interest. That was interesting for me. Uh, one, one thing, sorry, uh, and I know I've just seen the fight, but you've, you've hit my memory. In 1985, PRA were asked to do and go to Guernsey to be a unit of British soldiers for the 40th anniversary of the liberation. And it was mainly 352 guys. So we all got British Army kit, 1945, which cost us about 15 quid each back then to get a full British Army original World War II kit from top to bottom. Yeah. And uh, it was all arranged by Castle. We trained down to Weymouth over on the old world Goodwin. Uh, and they put us in a castle as well on the island. And we were, we were going to be the, the guys that liberated Guernsey uh, when Guernsey falls, May 1945. And it was going to be great. Now, the one thing that came away from me then, uh, we'd all got our kit on. We had three, you know, we had the whole kit. Uh, as a unit, we just transferred Germans into Brits. So all the ranks and everything had gone with it. Uh, the army were there in full stay. had Harry Seacom in a Lancaster and everything else. And the one thing I can remember is we'd started off at the docks for the big day, which is, I think it was the 8th of May. They actually got liberated Guernsey on the 8th of May. And we're all in World War II vehicles and we come down from the assembly area that was a park and we come down into St. Peterport, the town, all dressed as British soldiers. And we were marching behind some lorries and the guy at the front just went, oh, my, I won't say what he said, but literally, oh, my God. And the whole of the town erupted in front of us when they saw the British soldiers in kit marching down. And we were mobbed. We were absolutely mobbed. Um, you know, people coming up, hugging. And, and it was someone said, this must have how it felt when you went into, like, liberating a French village, when you see the photographs of Paris, when you see the photographs of Brussels, it must have felt like that. And it hit me. You wouldn't have got that without reenacting. You know, I, I really felt at that point that was one of the true things that we did, that you got, wow. You, you couldn't walk. You were just mobbed. And someone said, it was Passmore. I said, it's like we walked into Paris in 1944. Um, you, and it was this, you know, you couldn't buy a drink in a bar the next day and all the rest of it. So we, we wore kit for the rest of the week that we were there. But that initial thing of seeing British soldiers, everyone erupting. Um, of course, they said, do they know we normally play Germans when we reenact? <laughs> but that, that was... I wouldn't have done that without reenacting. And that certainly brought it home to me when, when I've spoken to, to guys at work years ago, when I said, Gary, when we were going, you know, we went into Brussels, I had a guards armoured guy. He said, you wouldn't believe the reception that we got. Actually, I would. And, and, and that, I think that's a sort of a lovely point really to sort of wrap, wrap this particular um, visitation up on because you know, as I say, always end on a high. I mean, Nick, is there anything else you wanted to add before we um, we we, we descend into the ante room, kick the uh, training majors dog off the chairs, and, and crack open the port? No, no, not at all. <laughs> um, I, just like no, it's been it's been just an enjoyable um, you know, conversation taking taking part of genuinely, um, yeah. And thank you both ever so much for coming back. And I, I do apologise to the gap <clears throat> and, and for sharing your experiences. And, and, and Gary, you know, your, your narrative right at the end, that, that's, that, well, you know, you, you can't beat that for the end of a, um, a, a catch up um, in the, in the adjuncts lounge. Um, so once again, chaps, thank you both ever so much uh, for putting aside your time. Uh, and I know Gary, you sort of, you, you have um, domestic duties that are that await you. Off the and... Centre Mayor and shopping. <laughs> um, and and Nick, likewise, I'm, I'm, I know you're busy. So, chaps, thank you both ever so much, and, and it's lovely to catch up with you. And listeners, um, we will be back, rest assured, um, in, in in a week. Or so, um, thanks for, for tuning in. Um, 
as always, without you, these these sort of uh, podcasts uh, wouldn't be happening. Um, I hope you don't mind the the change of the podcast name as well. I just felt it it seemed a bit more um, on message, as it were, um, because everything develops in life. So as this podcast has developed, so um, this is the this is the first the Adjutant's Lounge podcast 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 thing. Yeah. Anyway, on that note, um, wherever you are in the world, um, do take care. Uh, and it's goodbye from me, OC Sports Prevention, um, chaps. And it's goodbye from France. Au revoir. Au revoir. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, goodbye from Epsom in Surrey. Um... <laughs> <laughs> so wherever you are in the world, do take care. And I'm sure you'll uh, we'll, we'll see or hear you very, very soon. Go well, TTFN.